didn't we sign some like uh, 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 left fielder? One of our left fielder cadre who was had the same first and last name as someone else in the. Uh... Well, let's see. I think there's only one Nolan Reimold, and there's barely one. <laughs> I I can only think uh, Francisco Paguero. Thankfully, uh. again, only <laughs> one of those. Chad Tracy. Ah, yes, we did sign the wrong Chad Tracy. <laughs> Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com. You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Welcome. Ladies and gentlemen, to episode 85 of Baltimoreans, the show that invokes the name of an injured Twins third base prospect whenever we're offered illicit substances of any kind. That's right, folks. We just say no. That said, Oof. in any case... <laughs> that said, in case any regulatory entities are listening, we've received clearance from our benevolent overlords at the Baltimore Sports Report Network to consume Angel's Envy Kentucky Straight Bourbon during the broadcast, provided we refer to it as podcasting juice. Check and check. We've got an excellent show on tap for you this evening, including a fantastic interview with internationally renowned cricket commentator Andy Zaltzman, who also hosts a podcast you may have heard of called The Bugle. We'll also bring you our most popular recurring segment, the Todd Froworth Franchise Report. Odd Todd was arguably the lone bright spot for the 1991 Orioles, aside from Cal Ripken's MVP season. Todd allowed just two home runs in 96.1 innings of sparkling relief on his way to a 1.87 earned run average and a legacy worthy of inclusion in the book I hope to one day write. <laughs> Side notes. The inexplicable ability of certain 30-something journeyman pitchers with otherwise pedestrian stuff to enjoy a year or two as dominant relief pitchers simply by learning how to pitch sidearm. Probably going to have to cut down on the <laughs> post-colon title a bit to Nonsense. attract the eye of an agent. Todd Froworth will be a central character in this narrative alongside Chad Bradford. Or was it Brad Chadford? <laughs> Darren O'Day, Joe Smith, remember? and Scott Sauerbeck. Ladies and gentlemen, we will also be bringing you our patented seventh inning sketch segment. However, none of that is going to make any sense to you without the proper cultural context surrounding the number 85, which my esteemed colleague Alan Smith is here to provide. Ooh, look at that alliteration there. Which, what happened? Number 85 and here to provide. It was nice. Ah. I appreciated it. You know, I, I've gotten so good that these things happen by accident. <laughs> it's just it's like water off a duck's ass. <laughs> Episode 85 is exactly the correct reaction to the new Arnold Schwarzenegger film that is currently, apparently, scheduled to come out in 2015. Eh? T5? That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Terminator 5. And I want to know, how do we live in a world where the governor of our most populous state manages to be in blockbuster films about post-apocalyptic, hellscape, machine-driven worlds both before and after serving in elected office? And perhaps more importantly, I want to know, does this mean that we need an even more upgraded and terrifying robot for Arnold to do battle with? Let's review here for a second, because in the film, the original film, the Governor plays the role of the T-800, a robot killer sent back in time to kill the mother of John Connor. In T-2, he's the T-800 robot tasked with defending John Connor from the T-1000 robot, and he's woefully out-teched and only overcomes this obstacle by learning how to love. The T-X robot makes her appearance in the third film, at which point Arnold is portraying the T-850 Terminator 101 robot, which I guess is a slightly souped-up model of the original T-800, um, but one that seems to have a nuclear fission reactor in his chest. In many ways, T-2 is a seminal work of science fiction philosophy. For more on this, please see Dr. Jacob Berger's You Gotta Listen to How People Talk, Machines and Natural Language with Kyle Ferguson in Terminator and Philosophy, I'll Be Back, Therefore I Am. That is a real book. 
and I think we can agree that it's a fantastic movie, but the Time Traveler's Paradox gets more confusing each time you add a new iteration onto the movie list. Because, and check this out, we learn in Terminator 2, A Judgment Day, that when the Terminator is destroyed in the first film, the microchip in its skull survives, only to fall into the hands of a computer company, Cyberdyne, which then allows for the creation of Skynet in the first place. Now think about that for a second. Only because the first movie is actualized does Skynet exist. Good stuff with the paradox of time travel. Is there a fate or do we have the ability to be free agents? What's happening here? I think this means that Skynet, in a bid to not undo the thing that allows it to be created, can't send more robots back before the plotline of what happened in the second movie, right? Because if it did, it would jeopardize the very timeline that allows it to exist in the first place. However, the second movie ends with us all feeling that the rise of the machines has been averted and we're all okay, which means that Skynet sends something back in time and then ceased to exist because we defeated it which wouldn't that undo its ability to be sent back in time to begin with? Anyway, then we're on to film number three, because this is where things get really confusing. Not only does Arnold tell us during the third film that the machine invasion is inevitable, but we're also introduced to the TX, which I mentioned before. She's hot, she's deadly, and she's still matched up against the T-800 model, because apparently the human resistance can't get their shit together enough to send anything back in time except for the same old Arnold Schwarzenegger. This raises three key questions for me. One, if we could develop the TX, why waste time with the T-1000? What were we doing in the second movie? Two, why is Skynet foolish enough to send back a T-1000 when it knows all it's going to do is slow the inevitable machine apocalypse down? because it's in the future, it knows this. And third, and probably the most important, can we change fate? Or do we just nudge it in one direction or the other by a few years? The question really raised by the third movie, and arguably the fourth movie, is do the plot of these fucking movies make any difference at all to the plot of these movies? Because you could argue that because they're all fated, What you've just watched means nothing at all. Okay, so now that I've completely confused everyone, I just want to know if traveling back in time to 2004 and kidnapping Johan Santana to take a few years off would mean that today's signing would become retroactively relevant because he wouldn't already have had two shoulder surgeries. And I would like to know if Terminator 5, starring Arnold's triumphant return to the silver screen in perhaps a reprisal of his most famous role ever, will answer the question once and for all by ironing out the metaphysical tricky widget bits of time travel theory. But I don't think they're going to answer the questions that we really want asked, Sam. Because that's Hollywood. <laughs> and more on Hollywood later in the program. <laughs> during this uh, Oscar season. Now, uh, you say that's going to that's gonna answer the questions we really want asked. Right. I, I've lost track of what those are. <laughs> But I do know, Alan Smith, that only one podcast on a weekly basis asks the most trenchant questions. The trickiest widgets, if In, you will. Yes. The stickiest. Stickiest widgets. The stickiest, trickiest widgets. And that is that is this program. Right. On a segment that we call the Todd Froworth Franchise Report. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) to the Todd Froworth Franchise Report. Each week on the report, we take the three most pressing news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them a ranking ranging from strikeout to home run. Item number one this week, I think we signed the wrong Santana, Sam. This is the second time this offseason where Dan Duquette went pounding after a free agent and then I think accidentally inked someone with the same last name instead. What's your ranking? Uh, When it comes to Johan Santana... And not Irvin Santana. Right. Uh, I am going to disagree completely with you. Oh. And I am going to call the signing of Johan Santana a home run. Oh, wow. Now, 
it is a home run that bounces off the top of the wall <laughs> okay. into the stands and has to be reviewed by the umpires. Okay, fair and enough. Here is the contents of the review. But it got out. Well, here's the thing. Okay. While, while the umpires are deliberating, okay. I'd like us to consider some facts. <laughs> Here are some things I would like you to to take note of about Johan Santana. Yep. He is only 34 years old. It feels like he's been around forever, but he's only 34. He has had two shoulder surgeries and a failed kidnapping attempt by a Terminator in 2004. <laughs> Do you know what else he's had two of? What's that? Cy Young Awards. <laughs> True. Now, here are some other relevant statistics. With the exception of the 2012 season, in every single season in which he has pitched more than 100 innings, mm -hmm. he has never posted an earned run average above 3.33. Okay. He has never posted a whip above 1.22. That's a very good number. He has a career home runs allowed per nine innings of exactly one. Wow. And here's the thing. He's always been a changeup artist. That's true. Not a flamethrower. Now, you could argue that uh, if throwing a changeup off an 81-mile-an-hour fastball, which is what he was clocked at in his uh, test throwing performance for the <laughs> Orioles, you're, that's, you're, we're in EFIS territory there. But still, uh, I, I don't think like uh, rip-snorting speed right. is not the level that he needs to get back to. Um, and now, here is another thing that I think is a very interesting comparison. Uh, Tom Glavin was recently, I think, justifiably elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. Okay. If we go by the wins against replacement statistic as calculated by BaseballReference.com, Tom Glavin, who I think everybody would agree was elected to the Hall of Fame based on his career in an Atlanta Braves uniform, okay, posted 58.7 wins against replacement as a Brave. Okay. Johan Santana, thus far in his career has been worth 50.7 wins against replacement. And he's younger than Glavin was when he went to the Mets. Ah. My point is, the last several years have made it very easy to forget that for a long time, Johan Santana was a historically excellent pitcher. That's true. Uh, of an ace caliber that we have never had. <laughs> in Baltimore since Jim Palmer. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying he's going to be that again, but for the risk that we're taking on, it's the a very reward that we may be getting does not have to be as good as he's been to still be an extremely good pitcher. All right. My concern, and the reason that I think the play may be reduced to a double upon review, okay, is that he uh, also adds to an increasingly troublesome tendency uh, on the part of Dan Duquette to sign reclamation project players who have done horrendous things in real life. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, so between Johan Santana, who was accused, although never formally charged, of sexual assault, Delman Young, who uh, was charged with assault, <laughs> not sexual assault, but of uh, racially motivated assault. Sure. Um, and Nelson Cruz, who is an avowed steroid user, I think Chris Davis is going to have to do a lot of preaching the gospel <laughs> of Jesus Christ. It's a good word. In the clubhouse, and I'm worried that's going to distract him from his on-field duties. That's fair. That's fair. I'm going to give the signing a home run as well. Oh. But it's in the minors, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Item number two on the Todd Froehwith <laughs> franchise report this evening... Concerns the coverage of Chris Davis's first spring training home run. Praise Jesus! In this week's nine to two exhibition loss to the Twins, I think it's fair to say that the bulk of both mainstream and independent media headlines about the game referenced the home run by Chris Davis <laughs> as the main event of that game. Alan Smith, are you at all troubled by this? Um, I'm not particularly troubled by this. Okay, I think it's. Uh, I think this is a double um, that scores a bunch of other runs. Okay. Now here's why it scores a bunch of other more runs. than three. No, three runs. Three okay. runs. Three scores three run double, um, because it's Chris Davis helping out the rest of the team. Mm. Because I think that there are a lot of players who need to, um, you know, they need to get their legs back underneath them. They need to do that outside of the limelight for a little while. I'm talking about Nick Markakis. I'm talking about Manny Machado, who needs to get back from his injury. I think uh, Ryan Flaherty, whenever the spot, whenever anyone looks at him for too long at a time, I think he gets terrified and maybe wets himself a little bit. Um, <laughs> I think Francisco Pagoro was only recently informed that he's a baseball player. 
<laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think that the Orioles need some time to grow together, to coalesce as a team, um, to figure out where they all are. Uh, I'm excited for a lot of these players, but I think that if Chris Davis, who we know can carry the load of a lot of pressure um, and having a lot of people speculate about him for an entire season, and it didn't really seem to bother him that much. I think he's a very mentally strong human being, and I think he's ready to be the leader of this team. So I think everyone in an early spring training game talking about him and letting everybody else just kind of do their thing is great. That is a sunny outlook, and I appreciate it very much, Alan Smith. (laughs) I... I'm going to give this a swinging strikeout oh, gosh. on a splitter in the dirt from none other, other than notably strikeout-averse pitcher Aaron Cook. Oh, wow. Who you may recall posting a historically low strikeout rate for, I believe it was the 2009 Red Sox. Um, my issue here is that uh, every single piece of coverage that I have read about Chris Davis this year has been, is he going to hit 50 home runs again? Is he going to get to 54? Uh, He posted such amazing power numbers last year. Can he do it again? And that kind of pressure is exactly what derailed his career leading up to 2012. It was this fixation on his strength that caused him to press too much and think that that was the, the only kind of hitter that he was allowed to become. It wasn't until 2012 and the first part of 2013 when he was left alone that he became the guy that we know that he can be. Sure. But I think that the difference between Chris Davis now and Chris Davis in 2011 is that he has a a, a deeper faith in Buck Showalter and the support system around him and, yes, in his um, personal savior. Uh, (laughs) And and I think that, like, he's in a better place. I think that when you have hit 50, when you're coming off 54 home runs, you don't need to prove anything anymore about how many home runs you can hit. I mean, Mm. I think think that then you can, I think that everybody from, from, I mean, just look at, like, what LeBron James has been doing this season after having won two titles, he's taken his foot off the gas of like having to be the man in every single situation, every single game. And he's shooting a historic, historically well from the field. So he's only taking shots. He knows he can make, and he's doing that and he's making the rest of his teammates better. I I, I don't think that, I think that that the problem isn't um, for Chris Davis is not going to be pushing too hard on that on that particular front. So you're saying he has more emotional fortitude than I'm giving him credit for. <laughs> because well, I I'm not even saying it's that much emotional fortitude. I think that once you've done it, once you've lived up to the billing, then you're allowed to relax a little bit. Yeah. And I think that once you then relax, then I mean as long as he doesn't go into like a 75 game slump, you know, right. that then the, a slump could knock him back out of this, I think. But I think mostly he's going to be just pretty relaxed and and pretty easily into it. I guess my thing is I don't want the storyline that everybody in the press is advancing to be, is is Chris Davis going to post the same power statistics that he did last year? I want the storyline to be, is he going to continue to drive up his walk rate? Sure. Uh, And I want people to to remember that in 2012, he had 33 home runs and we made it to the playoffs. Last year, he hit 53 and we didn't. Right. Uh... And so I would rather the emphasis be on him improving the peripheral parts of his game that led to his breakout last year. Yeah, I I, I just don't think Chris cares about that anymore. From all the interviews I've seen, I, I mean, it just it just seems like he's like, yeah. So you think he is a star who befits the amount of pressure that's being put on him to carry the team? You think I do? You think we actually have one of those? I think he can do it. Oh well, well, that's <laughs> nice. I guess I hadn't. Uh, Hadn't occurred on, occurred to me to look at it that way. <laughs> so our final item on the report for this week comes to us from the great state of Michigan, specifically the city of Detroit, by way of Arlington, Texas. According to a report in the current issue of ESPN Magazine, Mr. Ian Kinsler is none too pleased with Rangers GM John Daniels, who of course traded him to Detroit in exchange for Prince Fielder in the first major move of this offseason. God, that was a long time ago. It, well, this is the thing. It wasn't, but it feels <laughs> like it feels like a memory from a past life. It really does. In the piece, Kinsler refers to Daniels as a quote sleazeball and says he hopes the Rangers go zero and one hundred and sixty-two in twenty fourteen. It's pretty rare for back of the house team business to make it out into the headlines. Sam, how do you rate this little outburst? This is 
uh, Alex Rodriguez delaying the game by passing his phone number written on a baseball <laughs> to a fan in the stands in hopes that she will sleep with him. You really are getting specific here, huh? I made a promise on last week's episode, and Scotty the intern told me I have to keep to my promises. <laughs> it's not exactly something we have a strong track record for around here. It's true. Um, basically, what I would like to point out in light of this incident is that this is exactly the kind of bull pucky that doesn't <laughs> happen in Baltimore. This kind of thing huh. doesn't happen. The, I there We don't have players who make themselves into an off-the-field distraction, by and large. Hmm. And that has been a hallmark of the team really for a long time, but particularly since the Showalter and Duquette era began. And I just want us to stop for a second and take a deep breath and be grateful for that. Mm. That for all of the concerns, the real concerns that we do have, are the young players really going to come into their own in the way that we need them to? Uh, is Ubaldo Jimenez really back from his self-described nightmare of 2012? Does Nelson Cruz actually have anything left in his bat without the uh, aid of performance-enhancing drugs? These are real questions. However... This kind of nonsense doesn't happen in Baltimore and hasn't for some time. I you're, just, I you're just pointing at me like I'm forgetting something. I want to point out that what you said in the first item this week is that the home run of signing Mr. Santana may be reduced to a double because we've added both him and Delman Young to the team. Well, the, okay. <laughs> so, it, you know. It may sound like logical inconsistency <laughs> to you. No, I'm not not logical inconsistency. Just knock on wood. <laughs> Let's all take a moment to to hope this trend continues despite the Delman Young thing. Well, that's <laughs> that is honestly the reason that I I brought up the the off the field struggles of those three players somewhat jokingly, but I actually really do think there's something to it. There that is by and large the type of conduct that we haven't seen on our team in a very long time. I think partially due to a fairly proactive cleaning of house by Peter Angelos in the wake of the Mitchell report and various people on the Oriole that Miguel Tejadas and Rafael Palmeros of the world. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, the Orioles clubhouse takes this kind of thing very seriously. And if Delman Young makes the team, which hopefully he won't, and we won't have to worry about any of this. Um, but the introduction of that kind of history and, and and you know the other thing is these are just guys who've gotten caught right who knows what other people have done and sure. it just hasn't come out in the press but as far as we know the orioles as a group don't tend to fall into these you high know, paid athlete moral pitfalls it's interesting um there the 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 space i hear about this a lot is in is in basketball mm. um there are a couple franchises the spurs the celtics who are like they have a bunch of good veteran guys, and and so the lock. I mean, the Celtics not anymore because they traded all the veteran guys. But for a long time, <laughs> like the Celtics with KG and Paul Pierce, and the Spurs with the you know um, uh, 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 Duncan and Ginobili and Parker were places where um, you could bring in a couple of crazy people because the culture and the coach in both cases the coach was a really strong personality um, that that you could bring in a a hothead who had had trouble other places because the culture was so strong and the veteran leadership was so strong and the support was so strong. And then it's interesting because over the years, a lot of hotheads have been brought into those teams. So you'd think that the sort of like the, 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 the balance of power would shift at some point and it'd be all crazy <laughs> people, but no, it didn't seem to happen that way. And like, there is something about the culture of a team that is set up that keeps those people, um, kind of on the straight and narrow so i think i think it's an interesting point and i hope that 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 continues and you think we have that that culture in place in such a way that it can counterbalance this kind of thing i do i do i think but the combination of um a a few sort of like leaders who if they're not veterans are at least people who lead with um who, who, who don't mind being leaders and seem to really uh, embrace that role and then buck showalter who i think is a a, a, a fantastic manager in that sphere um and then yeah i think i think we have that culture um, all right and then i'm gonna give it a uh a, a double because 
screw the Tigers and screw the Rangers. Whatever's <laughs> happening over there, I'll just put on my Homer hat for a second. <laughs> <laughs> What's bad for them is good for us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's edition of the Todd Froworth Franchise Report. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for a conversation that we are really excited about. We are about to talk to Andy Zaltzman, co-host of The Bugle, about the intricacies of cricket, aircraft carriers, psychopathic dictators, and other Orioles-related topics (laughs) right after this. Our guest this week needs no introduction, but we'd like to give him one anyway. He is the captain of cricket commentary, who puts the snark into snooker, the LOL into the EPL, and interesting puns into international politics. He's the host of The Bugle, the funniest stream of bullshit on either side of the pond, and the hardest working satirist in show business, Andy Zaltzman. Welcome to Baltimore on, sir. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for that very flattering introduction. <laughs> I hope I can live up to at least one of the phrases in that. <laughs> well, we're not going to ask you anything about snooker because we don't know anything about it. So, yes, right, okay. we know none of the vocabulary words to uh, converse any further on most of those topics. <laughs> but for our first question, we'd like to ask you. Uh, so we love baseball, despite the fact that it is a bizarre sport with somewhat archaic rules, very little action and more games in a season than many people can keep track of. Can you defend your love of cricket? Uh, well, I think um, I'm not see cricket very much as the game America could have had, uh, <laughs> had, uh, had it uh, just been a little more grown up as a nation. Um, it was, um, I mean, it was quite popular in parts of the States in the, in the late 19th century. And, um, uh, but you, you took the wrong choice. I, I do like baseball, <laughs> but I don't, it's, it's the, the number of games in a season I, I slightly struggle with the 100 162 game season well, lots of short games as cricket has you know a test match in cricket is five days um <laughs> and that is you know six to seven hours play a day for five days and i think baseball should really adopt that uh have uh, five day five day baseball matches maybe only a 30 match season as a result um <laughs> Well, I think um, uh, I mean, like like baseball, it's, it gives you a lot of time to think cricket, and in, in uh, you know baseball, there's you know it's there's sort of intermittent bursts of action, and then just a general kind of atmosphere of people sitting down eating hot dogs, and uh, <laughs> right. it's, it's more sandwiches with cricket, but it's a, a very similar. <laughs> Well, style, I think. You know, it's interesting, uh, you know, you mentioned that because you'd think that given the, the well-documented American passion for tailgating, we could really get into a five-day event that was more food-centric. Yes, I mean, food is an absolutely critical part of, uh, <laughs> of cricket. And, um, well, part because, you know, if you're, if you're playing for seven hours, you probably need a snack at some point. But um, right. how, do, how do people keep, uh, keep themselves hydrated on the field for seven-hour stints? In the old days, there were stories of um, fast bowlers in uh, it's going back sort of 70 or 80 years. But, you know, a fast bowler would finish a, a long stint of bowling and would summon a pint of beer onto the field. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. That's, that's Babe Ruthian in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, sadly gone from the game. I think I would, it would certainly spice it up. But um, yeah, for, for the crowd, uh, what, what you get uh, in, uh, in the big matches um, – well, and even in the, the smaller matches, because they're so, it's you're in the crowd for so long. A lot of people will start drinking at around about half past ten in the morning, and play <laughs> carries on until sort of half past six. So wow. from about four p.m. onwards, you've got about ten thousand people who have just got slowly sozzled, often sitting in the sunshine <laughs> without hats on. And what you then have is an an entire crowd suddenly regressing to the mental age of uh, of about nine or ten and becoming just incredibly collectively juvenile and um <laughs> that's one of the high points of cricket it, it, when the, if the play is a bit boring there's probably uh, a group of idiots in the crowd trying to make the longest ever snake of plastic beer glasses to keep you <laughs> into touch. so that ends up being as much crowd watching as it is as it is cricket watching yeah when the cricket is, is not at its best then then yes certainly so are there are there uh i like to think about lebron james um ending up on the U.S. men's national team in soccer or the sort of different crossover sports appeals 
Is baseball uh, skill set applicable? Should we get Derek Jeter when he retires from the Yankees to come suit up for a cricket team? Um, well, he's a bit old, isn't he? I mean, I, I mean yeah, that's true. <laughs> how old is he? Is he nearly forty? Or yeah, 39. I believe he will play at age forty this year. Right, and that's—I mean, even for cricket, that's getting on. I mean, <laughs> in the early days of cricket, players would go on until well into their fifties, and even in England, had a few international players who were over fifty still playing for England. But those days are. A long gone forties still occasionally happens, but but pretty rarely. I think Jeter is certainly one of the players who could have made it as a cricketer. Nice <laughs> nice mover in the field. You know, there's certain skill. You know, it's it's hitting a a ball with a stick essentially. So there's certain transfer <laughs> skills. But it's I, I, the nature of the swing is completely different. I, I had a, a go in a hitting cage last time I was in uh, in the states, and um, in cricket you're taught to hit with the, the bat vertical. And so trying to hit uh, a, hit with a baseball bat goes against everything that you you, you feel almost unpatriotic taking these <laughs> kind of at the ball. So um, I th- I thought you were going to say uh, that you had to go in a uh, in a batting cage here and were drafted by the Baltimore Orioles because <laughs> it was that desperate for a little while for us. Right. Well, they, I mean they they did they did get in contact, but the money wasn't right. So I thought... <laughs> More money in the podcasting game, eh? <laughs> That's right. Huge money, multi millions. <laughs> as uh, as we can attest to as well. Yeah. Um, so if, as you've stated on the Bugle, hitting dingers off an aircraft carrier to people driving jet skis is the epitome of essentially all things America, what would you say is the equivalent British metaphor? Well, I mean, it it is definitely hard to beat that for, for most Americans. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. We're not quite expressive enough as a nation to do anything like that. I, I think the British equivalent would be to be on a nice rowing boat in that bit of ski with all the jet skis, mm. watching this happening, and just sitting, trying to read your newspaper with a cup of tea, <laughs> occasionally looking over the corner of the newspaper and, and tutting to yourself, and saying, Marjorie, this isn't on. That, that, I think that would be the British... British, uh, British maybe playing, uh, I don't know, hitting croquet balls off an aircraft carrier. Probably <laughs> and that's quite sure the same impact. You don't get quite the same sore somehow. <laughs> There's a there's a gentility there actually I think which uh, a lot of Orioles fans would would find very appealing. Orioles fans, I don't know if you're aware of this, have a bit of a reputation for being uh, annoyingly soft spoken even during the most dramatic moments of baseball games. Right. Yeah, we um, we 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 sit on our hands quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, what what what? Why is is that something to do with Baltimore in particular as a? Well, as a, Baltimore, as a, as a as a as a city, is something of a uh, a hard, <laughs> violent wasteland. <laughs> yeah, violent wasteland. But uh, for some reason, when we when we get into sports arenas, at least in baseball, there, there's a there's a propensity for the Yankees and the Red Sox to come into town and sell out as many seats. So we always have the away team um, right. being yeah. as loud or as obnoxious. Uh, yeah, I mean that that's obviously uh, a bit of an issue. I mean, I don't know much about Baltimore. I'll be. Uh... <laughs> Uh, I'll be honest, but it's... Have you it's, watched it's, The Wire? <laughs> I've seen bits of The Wire, so I just assume it's all like that. That so it makes could be you that as qualified to... as we are to host a... <laughs> to be on a Baltimore Orioles podcast. Um, I, I suppose maybe going to see the, the baseball is a, is an escape from that drug-fueled reality <laughs> and people just like to relax and maybe not get too vocal. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes yeah. sense. All right, so Sam here uh, loves the Orioles as his one true romance in sports, but... I think I'm a little bit more like you, Andy, in the sense that uh, I think pretty much any sport at any time is good. Uh, if I'm watching curling, I will get super involved in that, and even if I don't know the rules, end up screaming at the screen and having a grand old time. So <laughs> what draws you to sport as an idea? And you seem to have dedicated a lot of your life outside of comedy and sometimes crossover with comedy to obscure sport. What what, yeah. what do you like about it? Well, I guess... Um... I guess sport is, uh, if you're not much of a fan of reality, um, then <laughs> s- sport sport really saves the day. So I guess, um, you know, it's an, it's, an, it's an escape from, you know, the harsh realities of, of reality. And, you know, if, basically it helps extend your childhood to an almost infinite degree. And um, I've been sort of obsessed with sports since I was about six years old. And I... I, I I don't know what I what I would have done with my brain had I not wasted so much of it on sport. <laughs> but it, I could have done something very good. I could have, I could have become a you know a crazed despot. Who knows? But um, uh, I think actually maybe uh, you know some despots just aren't in. If they were obsessed with sports statistics, then 
you know, if uh, Gaddafi had got really into to baseball <laughs> stats as a kid, he probably wouldn't have done nearly as much damage as he did. Um, ah, well, but I think it is, it, it is that that escape, uh, that escapism, and you know, it's sort of it's live drama. So as you say, even with curling, and I, 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 we, we get shown a lot of curling here in Britain because we once won a medal in it, and um, <laughs> so we get very involved. And it's I mean, it's basically crushingly tedious. But even so, there's a there's a sort of there's a drama to it. You know, you don't know quite what's going to happen. Um, it, you know, it's about the only thing in the world now that doesn't get... You, you can't leak it before it happens. Mm. Everything else gets leaked. You know what's going to happen in TV shows? You know what's going to happen in films? You know who's going to sing what song, where and whatever. But sport, you don't You don't know. You know, And that, that, it's, it's one of the few things left. I mean, even wars get leaked. I'm pretty sure... <laughs> you know, Ukraine, it's, just, it's basically being a leaked war, essentially. That's what's uh, what's happening over there at the moment. Yeah. So it's, uh, I, I guess, that, that, that unpredictability, that, that live drama and this that that escape from uh, having to think about things of genuine importance but then you spend the rest of your time thinking about things that are genuinely important at least to satirize them uh, yeah <laughs> um i mean not all of the rest of my time but, um, <laughs> okay, uh, fair fair yeah i guess uh, i guess as um you know doing kind of political comedy there reaches a stage when you just you just can't face any more news without wanting to right, smash right. your television to pieces. So, um, <laughs> so then you're just watching a nice sedate couple of hours or five days of cricket is uh, you know, quite a good way to diffuse the tension. So that that's interesting because I'm I'm not hearing you say what I think is true for a lot of other people, which is that um, there's an aspirational component to watching sport. You uh, you see people achieving feats. Of 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 kind of cathartic physical excellence, maybe not so much in curling or cricket, but <laughs> or baseball. But in general, there's a there's a there's a component to which you kind of want to identify with what they're able to do. Uh, but it sounds like for you, it's more of an intellectual curiosity. Uh, yeah, I think I mean it, it. It works on in a number of levels, and certainly you know seeing people do amazing things is one of the joys of, of sport. I saw a lot of the Olympics in London. I uh, saw Usain Bolt and um, mm-hmm. you know David David Rudisha breaking out 100 meters world record was one of the most amazing things that you could see in sport, particularly because <laughs> it was uh, it was incredible because the the crowd didn't have any kind of a particular attachment to, to any of the uh, to to, uh, to Rudisha. He was a Kenyan, obviously a you know, high profile athlete, but he ran mm-hmm. this amazing race where he just went two two laps from the front and smashed the world his own world record, and the whole stadium just went absolutely nuts. And then about a minute later, this guy. <laughs> in the row behind me, came back to his seat carrying one bottle of water and one bottle of Coke and said to his girlfriend, I chose a bad time to go and get these. Didn't <laughs> oh, <I?"> no. <laughs> but that's, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard. To, I mean, that's another reason that we love sport. There's there's nothing else that cre- could create that. 80,000 people right. going absolutely nuts for a man they have absolutely no <laughs> vested interest in. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, basically, there's a number of ways that, that sport is better than life, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there is that amazing thing that in the time it takes you to get up and get a Coke and a bottle of water, the world can change. <laughs> <laughs> or at least the world, in terms of how fast people can run around an athletics track twice, can change. <laughs> a small bit of the world, but peace nonetheless. All right. Well, our, our last question for you. Uh, one of the themes of our show is that the owners of professional sports franchises universally suck. Uh, Major League Baseball owners especially are a pretty shit category of humanity. (laughs) And we personally would like everything to be owned by the fans. And when we think of English football, we think of passionate fans of their hometown team who live and die and sometimes flip over cars based on the outcome on the pitch. But this seems somewhat at odds with the fact that English football appears to be owned by crazy oil tycoons from Saudi Arabia. (laughs) <laughs> has that changed how people follow the sport or do people not care um i think people do care a bit that the ones that are owned by crazy oil tycoons from saudi arabia that are winning don't mind the ones that are owned <laughs> by crazy oil tycoons from saudi arabia that are not winning do mind so that's um, exactly the baltimore situation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i think people most of the kind of big money owners of sports franchises are basically by them as a way of uh, essentially avoiding assassination uh, <laughs> or imprisonment um, or both. Um, so, um, you know, they, they kind of move over to Britain and do something high profile where it become a bit awkward if they got covertly bumped <laughs> off. So um, uh, it, it's um, it, it does rather take the... Uh, That's a high price insurance with, with, policy. Uh, yes. Yeah. But I guess if you've got the money, you might as well use it. Yep. Um, sure. 
I think it's made sport a bit less interesting for the neutral. It's now become certainly fo- football. Uh, it certainly has become this um, kind of plutocracy of, of idiotic um, magnates from uh, various parts of the world. Mm. Uh, and it, I think it's it's lost a bit of its unpredictability. Most of the top leagues in Europe are fairly predictable in terms of who's going to be in the in the top top two or three. So um, mm. it's uh, it'll be interesting to see if if at some point the fans suddenly think, well, hang on. My team has absolutely no chance. What is the point of all this? Um, but that point still seems to be reasonably, reasonably far away. So why, I think one of the reasons why I, I personally prefer international sport, um, where you know you can't just go out and buy an entire team. It's there's still an element of uh, genuine identity, uh, hmm. identity hmm. to it. Hmm. So you World Cup over uh, the EPL? Yeah, I'm not that fussed about the uh, the. The EPL. I sort of watched the. I, I used to. I used to really love it, but I. I tend to watch the highlights now. But the World Cup, I, I love, even though the football is often really awful there. The team, <laughs> team, teams get very defensive, and FIFA usually do something like spring a ball on the players that it's completely impossible to play football with. Yeah. So, um, but still, it, it's um, you know, it's the football that matters matters the most. So it, it has that. Or put it in cutter where it's going to be seven thousand degrees on the field. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that, that that will give it an, an added dimension of you know seeing how many players just keel over in, in a state <laughs> of near death, which is, I mean, if, a FIFA. The, this is, uh, I guess, another thing with with looking on the positive side of the owners of sports franchises and people in sports politics at top level sports administration most of them you look at them and you think the world should be thankful that you did not go into politics because most of these people <laughs> if they come into politics they will probably e- either be driving around in tanks looking at 60 meter high portraits of themselves or they will be sitting in the hague in the international criminal court saying no i didn't and refusing <laughs> to acknowledge the legitimacy of the court so we should probably be thankful that they've stuck to sports rather than being actually important <laughs> Well, uh, Andy, thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with us today. Um, as, as I said at the beginning of the show, Andy Zaltzman is the host of The Bugle. Uh, he is the reason that I, as a red-haired, lapsed Jew, um, <laughs> feel as though I can make something of my life in the world. <laughs> it's great to be an inspiration. <laughs> are, are, the, are the Orioles ever going to come and play a baseball game in London? Because uh, we've had... Uh... We've had a, the NFL, we've had the uh, um, basketball. If anyone was going to pick a team to come play and export the game of baseball, it's probably not going to be your Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> well, they keep sending useless football teams over to That's play the true. game. That's, That's true. true. They've been Absolutely truly awful. bad. Yeah. Maybe we have a shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you'd be welcome, any So they can come and play on uh, Streatham Common near where I live in South London. I'm sure we get a crowd. <laughs> <laughs> I, even then, I feel like most of the people would be there for the Andy Zaltzman factor and not the uh, Baltimore oh, yeah, Orioles yeah. factor. <laughs> I can barely leave the house these days. <laughs> All right, sir. Well, thank you again for joining us. And good luck for the season. listening to Baltimore the home of the all-weather fan. I'm Alan Smith. And I'm Sam Dingman. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was Andy Zaltzman, who uh, I think I mentioned is a personal hero of mine and probably one of the funniest human beings I've ever encountered. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, as America is all too painfully aware it is currently award season. Yes, it is that time of year when a deeply insular community with a disproportionate effect on the socio-cultural currents of a nation, and indeed the world, turns even further inward to gaze at its own navel and to pluck out shimmering bits of lint which may artificially extend its already exaggerated influence. Yes, that's right. It's the end of the Major League Baseball offseason, and we're here to pay tribute to some of the best dishes to come off of a rapidly cooling stove. Every year, general managers, without a lot of cash, pay general lip service to long-suffering fan bases in hopes of placating an increasingly dwindling supply of season ticket holders. This year is no exception. The nominees for best performance in the role of sincerely attempting to upgrade a roster that anyone with half a brain can tell is completely beyond repair are... New York Mets general manager Sandy Alderson for his role in Apocalypse Soon, the Curtis Granderson contract. 
Kansas City Royals general manager Dayton Moore for his work in the remake of Down on the Farm 3. Blue Jays general manager Alex Anthopoulos for his performance in Canadian Hustle. And Houston Astros GM Jeff Lunau for his role in The Thin Orange Line, A Story of War. And the winner is Sandy Alderson and the New York Mets. Now, Sandy is unfortunately not here to accept the award this evening because he's just received word that Bartolo Colon was found floating face down in a kiddie pool filled with deer antler serum. But here to accept the award on his behalf is David Wright. Obviously, we're not playing all that well. Stick together, you know, really, and, and um, you know, work our way through this. It is um, you know, a tough period for us. It's a tough stretch. You know, but, but you know, to, to be able to, to come together as a team and, and really go out there and play you know, team baseball, you know, I think is important. And, and uh, you know, the way that we're gonna kind of ride this thing out. Moving words from the captain of the New York Mets. Our next award this evening celebrates the financial splendor of this great game, which so accurately reflects the values of those who sign the checks every year. The nominees in the category of most horrific amount of money committed to an aging core of washed-up former superstars whose bloated contracts swing albatross-like about the necks of their fan bases are... Brian Cashman of the New York Yankees in The Wolf of Wall Street, which grossed and we mean grossed in the sense of gross, $195.5 million. The Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim general manager Jerry DePoto for the Sluggers Buyers Club. Jerry's team, of course, paid out more than the payroll of the entire Houston Astros on last year's salaries to Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton alone. And Los Angeles Dodgers general manager Ned Coletti for Magic, the Gathering of All-Stars. And the winner is... No one. No, no one wins. And for our final category tonight, we're proud to present the Lifetime Achievement Award, which is bestowed yearly upon a Major League Baseball owner who has demonstrated a particularly remarkable commitment to betraying the trust of the community he purports to serve. You know him from his work in the tragic thriller Montreal Confidential, the epic story of his quixotic pursuit of high-priced free agents, Sheffield of Dreams, and this year's biopic about his life, 12 Years a Knave. Please welcome Jeffrey Loria. We certainly have a lot of strength in our lineup, even without Ugla. I mean, look at the lineup you've got. Fonte and Coughlin and Morrison, Gabby Sanchez, the, ca- the catcher, <laughs> whoever that might be. Inspiring words from an inspiring man. And that concludes this year's Hot Stove Awards ceremony. We'll be back next year when things will almost certainly have gotten even more hopeless. Good night, everyone. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are just about out of time here on episode 85 of Baltimoreans, but before we go, Alan Smith has a public service announcement for those of you living in the Baltimore area. A very important public service announcement. We want y'all to go hang out with one of our very near and dear Sister Wife podcasts. Um, Section 336 has existed for exactly one year. Uh, And it was a year ago this next week when they fired up the old podcast machine for the first trip down Orioles Lane. Uh, And they're celebrating by holding a live event. It's going to be at Mother's Peninsula Grill 
details are all over section336.com, but we just want you to let you know that this live show with special guests, special segments, special videos, and a special Burt's Storytime, my personal favorite segment on Section 336, will be live at Mother's Peninsula Grill. Uh, it's going to be Sunday, March 16th. Sadly, Sam and I... Again, not sadly, because we're going to be in spring training. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> but Sam and I are not going to be able to make it. But you should, unless you too will also be at a spring training game. In which case, you should tell us you'll be at a spring training game. And we'll hang out. So we can see your face. But uh, in all seriousness, the Baltimore Sports Report Network, which is awesome, exists because of the joint efforts of Josh Soroka and Zach Wilt. Uh, Zach is the proprietor of BaltimoreSportsReport.com, and he and Josh put in all the legwork to get the network off the ground. So if you enjoy the stuff that you're getting from the network every week, please go support Josh and the Section 336 podcast and tell them that the Baltimoreans sent you. It won't get you anything, but... Uh, <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, last week we asked you to tweet us your thoughts on who should be the Orioles' closer in 2014, and while we were hoping for a lively debate on this topic, it turns out you all think it should be Darren O'Day. <laughs> That's fine. So this week, for the question of the week, we're going to make things a little harder. Via a tweet to us at BeMorons, or an email to BaltimoreOnsPodcast at gmail.com, or a voicemail to 909RibWars, let us know which number you think will be the highest. Ryan Flaherty's home run total, Jamile Weeks' stolen base total, or the number of games played by Nolan Reimold. The winner will get a box of Kleenex <laughs> to mop up the tears. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our program is written and produced by Alan Smith and Sam Dingman with music by Marshall York, James Carter, Town Hall, Weather Report, Fish, and the Black Crows. Our website is bemorons.com and our iTunes is anxiously awaiting your review. <laughs> what do you call Henry Rudia when he is a mythical African destination from the mists of prehistory? That would be Henry Timbuktu Rudia, and I eagerly invite him to travel there. Good night. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.